Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 19. We're going to be starting at verse 8. And Paul is teaching in Tyrannus' school. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for this time together that we can come to study your word and for Mark and uh, his preparation that he does for this study and we we thank you for this and bless this time together in jesus name amen hi mark amen hi tom welcome well good to be back with you again as always here we've uh, spent a considerable amount of time looking at uh, the book of acts as the systematic uh, restoration or spiritual transformation of israel and we're kind of winding down the travel log part of the book here there's still some to come but once we get into chapter 20 that will slow down quite a bit as paul becomes uh unable to move exactly when and where he would like to and uh, we'll have a lengthy section on his trials which have a lot of interesting things that are overlooked or willfully ignored by many teachers in our day and age in our country but we have the final bit of this is uh, Ephesus and then his last journey from Ephesus that ends up back in Jerusalem and we started uh, last time with his uh, time in Ephesus some scholars and commentators have noted that it's almost like Luke is giving a slideshow and there's four slides of Ephesus and then you know, so there's like a picture on the screen, and then Luke talks about it. So in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19, we had what happened right after Apollos left, and Paul came, and he found uh, seven men who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but had never really been taught by anybody who was in the, I don't know what we'd call it, maybe the apostolic stream after Pentecost. They had only been exposed to people who were disciples of John the Immerser, or John the Baptist, as he's known in English. Uh, And so they had an incomplete version of the gospel, and we talked about that a little bit last time. They were re-baptized, and they probably became the, there were 12 of them, yeah, 12 of them. They became probably the core nucleus of the believers within the synagogue community in Ephesus. And 
we'll pick up here in verse 8 of chapter 19 now. Does someone want to read verses 8 through 10, please? Okay, we're reading from the uh, New King James Version. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. All right, great. We see this common pattern continuing here of the synagogue being the community of God's people in all the major cities of the Roman world. And there is not a clear break, as many of us have just kind of assumed that, you know, after Jesus was crucified, there's a whole new community of believers, and they are called the church. We're not really seeing that. We see that the focus and emphasis during the lives of the apostles, lifetime of the apostles, is on getting the message first and foremost to all of historical Israel, all the people who are connected with the Israelite nation, and the synagogue communities are where these people gather. They've been scattered all over the world. So even Paul, whose emphasis is the other nations, he always goes into the synagogue first, and he'll continue this here in Ephesus. So he's reasoning, and again, we see this openness that we only wish we had today, <laughs> where the at the weekly gatherings, they want the new visitors to speak up and say whatever they want to say. Paul was able to do this freely for three months, and he used this to speak persuasively about the kingdom of God. This is the favorite topic of the book of Acts. And you would think that if the kingdom was thousands of years in the future, that it wouldn't be so obsessive to all of the speakers that we read about in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts opens with Jesus spending his last 40 days in his physical form, teaching the disciples of the kingdom of God. And the book of Acts will close with Paul teaching all the leaders of the Roman synagogues of the kingdom of God. And here in the middle, that's the greatest topic that's mentioned is the kingdom of God. So that's what he's using his opportunities in the synagogue to discuss is the kingdom of God. And of course, we realize that he's he's speaking of the spiritual transformation of the kingdom of David into the kingdom of Christ, who is David's heir. And this was a stumbling block for many then, just as it is for so many in our country today. Some were obstinate, wouldn't believe, and spoke evil of the way. In our local group, we're a little bit behind. We're still back in Acts, the uh, ninth chapter. And this is when the term the way is introduced by Luke, is when Saul is on his way to Damascus to persecute the disciples in Damascus, Syria. And the term the way is used to describe them. And in our in our discussion, one of my friends pointed out that this is the way to the tree of life back in the Garden of Eden that was blocked with a cherubim 
who was given a flaming sword of fire to guard the way of the tree of life. And Jesus has now here in the book of Acts opened the path back to the tree of life. And this is what the apostles are speaking of here in these discourses. The kingdom of God is the way back to the tree of life. Jesus, of course, is the tree of life. And everyone in the kingdom has access to the tree of life. But remaining in physical Israel was not the way to life. It was the way to death and imminent destruction. So there is a parting of the ways going on here. And we see it carried out in the synagogue in Ephesus. Paul is telling them they've got to take a a sharp turn from the way they're going and join themselves to Christ and leave any hope that would be attached to remaining part of physical uh, Israel before it's too late. And it will happen in almost every city. This is going to divide the synagogue community between those who believe what Paul is proving from the Scriptures and those who just absolutely will not see it and refuse to accept it. In this case, the opposition is so intense, and they spoke evil of the way in front of the congregation, so Paul had to withdraw the believing disciples out of the synagogue. And he, instead of teaching them at the synagogue's normal meeting place, he had to rent this uh, lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, some of the earlier manuscripts, which became the, uh, the, they call them the Western texts, that became the underlying document of the Latin Vulgate, the Codex in the Vatican, and so on, they have extra words that are not in the King James Version. And when it says that um, Paul met in the school of Tyrannus, the Western text adds from the 5th to the 10th hour. So this is the middle part of the day, which is very hot in the Mediterranean world. And nearly everything just shut down during the hot part of the day for people to go home and sleep. So this lecture hall would have been in use probably in the early morning hours and in the evening hours. And Paul rented it in the off-season, so to speak. So... Paul, in all likelihood, got a great deal renting this hall, but the price they paid is they're all in there sweating like dogs uh, in the hot part of the day while Paul is teaching them. He's probably working at his trade in the morning and in the evening hours, and then taking when everyone else would go home and take a nap, Paul and the disciples are meeting to uh, study the scriptures and learn about Jesus and his kingdom in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this continued on for two years so that all those who lived in Asia, both Jew and Greek, heard the word of the Lord. And again, the word Greek here basically means anyone of a non-Judean background. So, and this would be the whole western end of Turkey today, the modern Turkey the seven churches of Asia that the book of Revelation is addressed to are all in this region that is being mentioned here in verse 10. Uh, All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Paul, as far as we know, he never left the city. 
he just set up this school there, and the people came into him and learned and then went back home to the outlying towns and then spread what he had taught them to others. And this caused the word to be spread pervasively throughout the area. All right, any thoughts or comments there? In the... All right, well, let's continue on then. So this is kind of the second picture slide we get of Ephesus here, verses 8 through 10. Now let's read the next section a little bit longer, verses 11 through 19, please. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped out on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, so here's our third kind of snapshot of what happened in Ephesus during that time. Paul is doing a miraculous work. This is very parallel to the account back in Acts 8 of Philip and then later Peter and John going down to the Samaritans in Palestine where they had a magician and they did works that were so far beyond what the magicians of the day could perform that, you know, an interesting situation there developed, which we've already talked about. But interestingly, Ephesus was the center of magical training for the Roman world. So even Simon the sorcerer, who we met back in Acts 8, there's a really good chance that he studied his trade in Ephesus. And so Paul is doing works here much the same way that Moses and Aaron performed mighty signs and wonders in Egypt and completely overpowered the magic of the Egyptian pharaoh's court magicians. I think we've mentioned before how the book of Acts is intended to be a second exodus where God is calling his people out of bondage to the law and calling them in to the kingdom of grace of his son. And so we find these parallels to the life of Christ and also to the life of Moses all through the book of Acts. And so here we're going to see a contrast between God's mighty works and wonders 
and those of human magicians. And Paul's works here that God is doing through him are of no ordinary characters. In other words, they far exceeded that of ordinary magicians. So we just talked about the possibility that Paul is paying his own way by making tents, doing leather and canvas repairs and and making things out of leather and canvas in the morning and the evenings. So my translation says sweat rags and aprons, which would have been the uh, byproducts of the kind of hard manual labor that Paul applied himself to when he wasn't teaching the Word. These articles that had been in contact with him were, were taken and applied to those who were sick, and they got well. So that's pretty powerful. The word of what he was doing got around, and itinerant Judean exorcists were in the area. And again, it would have been common for them if they wanted to, you know, we the Bible doesn't talk about this Kabbalism. Our friend Craig does, but the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about this pagan mystical version of Judaism that that developed in Babylonian captivity. But to me, they're probably connected. I'm I'm no scholar in the field by any means. But here we find seven sons of a priestly family who are in Ephesus, maybe there to learn more magic tricks or to practice some of this Kabbalism. You know, I don't know, but it closely fits together in my mind, at least. And they're up there doing this, and they just want to uh, take this new power that Paul is banding about and claim some of it for their own. We have a few surviving manuscripts of magic books from this period, which would be similar to the ones that are burned here at the end of the paragraph. And they're mostly gibberish, but they are basically strings of words that are supposed to have great power. And the order in which these words of power are muttered uh, are supposed to be significant. So these expensive spell books are usually just lists of words in different orders that are supposed to accomplish, you know, different things. So if that was how they thought magic worked, you know, it would make sense that they would just appropriate the name of this uh, Jesus if they spoke Greek, or Yeshua, if they spoke Aramaic. Up here they would be speaking Greek. Um, And when they tried to appropriate this name and just add it into their lists of words of power, it didn't really work too well. (laughs) The uh, evil spirit answered them back and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And so they were overpowered all Seven of them are overpowered, and they barely made their escape from that house naked and wounded, which caused fear to come on all the people who lived in the area when they heard of this event. But the uh, power of this Jesus of Nazareth became greatly magnified in their minds as a result of all this. We don't, I mean, this this Siva who is mentioned is not really found in any of the lists of the high priests. the scholars point out that that under Hebrew tradition at this time, the uh, the Hebrew high priest or Israelite high priest is the only one who could 
pronounce the name of Yahweh, and to this day, rabbinic Jews do not use the name of God. They use synonyms, the Most Holy One or something, but they will not utter the name of God. So magicians were fighting all over themselves to find out this secret name because no Judean would tell them what the name was because they weren't allowed to pronounce it. And we find attempts at guessing the word or trying to put it together uh, in some of these ancient texts. But someone who claimed to be a chief priest would have probably been someone who claimed that he had been able to speak the name of God as the one high priest was allowed to do once a year on the Day of Atonement in Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly how all that's interrelated, but but we can see some of the ties that tie this story all together with the um, mysticism and magic that had pervaded the Judeans in Babylonian captivity and other things as well. So anyway, all of this notoriety of Paul and the catastrophic failure of these seven itinerant Judean exorcists caused many who had been practicing and studying the magic arts, of which, again, Ephesus was the center. People would come there from all over the Roman world to study magic. They came and made confession and admitted what they had been doing with their magic practices in verse 18, and uh, many of them brought their scrolls and together and burned them publicly, which amounted to 50,000 silver coins, so quite a value of books that were burned there at that time. All right, any other thoughts or comments? Mark, uh, this is Chuck. As I listen and to you talk about this, it somehow seems that we try to think of the society that Jesus operated in or the time he operated in, trying to liken it to our times. And actually, I think we failed to uh, really recognize the near total evil that went on at that time, not only in the Israelite society, but of course in the Greek society that came before them or concurrent with them. And then finally, the Roman society that was in operating at, the, at that time. And as you talk about this magic and Kabbalism and so on, I can't help but think that if you study really Roman history and Greek history, they were both steeped in kind of a godlessness that was manifested in multi-theism. They had all these numerous gods of all times, which really... Uh, boiled down to man is God, and the strongest man is the biggest God. And uh, that that was the society Jesus was operating in, and that these vagrant or migrant or whatever they were, Judeans who were scattered about the Roman world, they were living in these really terrible times where there really wasn't much morality. I mean, war and killing was just everyday stuff. It could be done just about by anybody, and especially by the Roman legion and people like that. And so if we think of it more in those terms, it, the acts make more sense to us that these guys, Paul and these people, were really operating in a incredibly evil societies 
even though we respect the Romans as uh, having some great ideas of government and freedoms and so on and so forth, they still believed in homosexuality and they believed in anything you really wanted to do and they murdered their rulers constantly and they took slaves at will. And I was going to ask you, are these people that we're talking about, how did they get in Ephesus? Were these migrant Israelites who were leaving a miserable place where it was hard to make a living and going to Ephesus because it was easier to make a living there? I mean, were they like the Mexicans emigrating in the United States, in other words? Or or were they slaves that had been freed, or what? Why were they? Why were they scattered all over the Roman kingdom? End of my question. Well, well, that's a great big question. <laughs> They're mainly scattered all over because they were all carried into Babylonian captivity in 586 BC, and well, three waves, and only five percent of them returned to Palestine 70 years later. The rest have spread out from uh, Babylon, modern-day Iraq, throughout the known world. So that's the number one reason that they're scattered. Number two, they were conquered by Rome, oh, uh, I'm trying to think, 60 to 80 years before Christ was born, or maybe longer than that. And, yeah, it was longer than that. Julius Caesar reversed the evil that had fallen on the Judean nation, and he gave them favored status because they helped him out when he was uh, trying to consolidate power. And they gained a lot of legal powers and prerogatives under Julius Caesar that are still in evidence in the narrative of the book of Acts. But there were a lot of them taken prisoner in the generation before, but subsequently freed. And those were the freedmen who have the synagogue in Jerusalem who stoned Stephen back earlier on in the book of Acts that we talked about. A, a freed slave had a very prestigious position in Roman society. And so if they were slaves, which they could have been, you know, that would have been fairly prestigious. But we know they're sons of a high priestly family, which means that they're not like Mexican immigrants in the U.S. today at all. These would have been wealthy, like spoiled, rich college kids today, I think, more than poverty-stricken immigrants. And I think their dad indulged them to send them up to Ephesus to study more magic and try out their trade or something. But, but we really don't know. Siva could have made himself into a high priest, but you wouldn't think Luke would have called him that if uh, it was a totally fictitious uh, title. But if it was true, they would be from the upper crust of Judean society. Does Mark, that... uh, I, I had a, another thought going back to this school of Tyrannus. I happened to have happened to come upon a site called Got Bible, Biblical Archaeology, Geography, and History. Don't even know who it is, but this was an interesting comment he made about this. Whoever this person is on this blog. He says, prior to having his discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, Paul had been begun his ministry in the synagogue, but was soon forced out due to obstinate people. But why a school? The word used for school in the original Greek, shoal, S-C-H-O-L-E, meant leisure. Not exactly my definition of school being an educator, but 
in Paul's day, discussions and debates were done during leisure time, and the word finally came to, to refer to a group of persons meeting for the purpose of having discussions or the place where the meeting was held. Schools during Paul's time can be thought of as a modern-day literary or philosophy clubs. Interesting comment. Yeah, that fits very well with the picture that's been building in my mind of, of exactly how this worked. I mean, most people didn't have that luxury. They had to do hard labor from sunup to sundown. So to sit around and discuss any topic was a luxury that usually only the wealthy could afford to do. He says here, just a little bit further down, the Greek manuscript of Acts, the Codex Beza, advises discussions were held between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., the part of the day when men were expected to be conducting leisure activities, not work. So that kind of fit with what you're saying. During those hours, men pursued their hobbies, they rested, or they took part in great discussions in a lecture hall or school, as it were. Okay, yeah. Very good. Yeah, that wouldn't explain how he was able to get a good break on the rent, but it fits in perfectly with everything else there. So we don't really know. I mean, these, these sketches of Luke are tantalizingly brief and We'll someday maybe find out we can ask him about some of the details that he left out. But for now, we have to be satisfied with uh, what we read here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that, thank you, Tom. That's good. So to sum this up, there's a huge conflict between the signs and wonders of God that he sent to confirm the gospel, the word of the apostles, and to get the, the new kingdom, the new temple built uh, there in one generation, and that's contrasted to the magical illusions of men, and we see the result of that here in this paragraph, and then we have kind of a one-verse summary in verse 20, which I'll just read. It says, so, so mightily did the word of the Lord keep on spreading and increasing in strength, and Asia became really a center of Christian activity uh, from this point forward there in the first century. So that, again, the whole book of Revelation, the conclusion of the Bible, is addressed to those seven churches which were established as a direct result of Apollos and then Paul's work in Ephesus at this time. And, again, there's mighty results, very impressive results here, we can infer from Luke's very brief report here in verse 20. All right, let's read verses 21 and 22. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. All right, so he's wanting to uh, cross the uh, Aegean Sea there to go to the churches in what are, what's modern-day Greece, which actually were established before the ones in Asia. He wanted to loop through there and then go 
back to Jerusalem. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why Paul was anxious to go back to Jerusalem, but when we read some of his letters, we can easily see that he'd been working for years to get the non-Judean Christians in these all of these churches to set aside money on a weekly basis that could be all gathered up and sent as a collection for the Judean churches who are suffering from uh, famine and poverty at, at this time. And this is a direct fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that says, The wealth of the nations shall flow into you, O Israel. That's not an exact quote. I don't remember exactly where it is. But he's going to demonstrate the power of the mission to the other nations that he alone is entrusted with, as opposed to still having 11 apostles just focusing on the Judeans uh, in the short time that they have left. He alone is going out to all the other nations, but also trying to gather all the righteous remnant out of the Judean communities that he comes into as well. But this great offering that he wants to take back to Jerusalem will fulfill prophecy, but it will also demonstrate that these non-Judeans are accepted into God's kingdom as equals. This is the great struggle that we just don't understand. Like Chuck was saying a while ago, we, we try to read these books in the modern-day context, and it just doesn't work very well. We have to try to understand the proper context as we read these books. And the point that most people miss is that it's not that the Israelites didn't want the foreigners coming into God's kingdom. They had read and heard read all of their lives that when Messiah came, all the nations would be drawn into the new Jerusalem into the new temple, into the Mount Zion. But they just expected that they would come in as slaves, basically, as second-class citizens who could sit in the back and do what they were told. And Paul's gospel says, no, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses, because if they do that, then they're Judeans just like us. And then they're not the other nations coming into God's kingdom. So by the Judean Christians having to become dependent on the generosity of these foreigners, you see, it is forcing the point that Paul is making that they are equals in the kingdom of God. And this is difficult for us to grasp because most of the Bible teachers in the U.S. have never thought of this and have never shared it with anyone else. But this is the context of Acts and of most of Paul's letters. So this is the very important reason that Paul wants to go back to Jerusalem at this time. And then he needs to go to Rome. There are already a lot of believers in Rome, but no one has gone in to the synagogues to try to teach the gospel to pull out the righteous remnant out of these synagogue communities in Rome. And this is Paul's obsession. It's his passion, and it's, it's really the context of the book of Romans. He's writing that to the Gentile or non-Judean Christians in Rome who are already basically writing off the synagogue communities as a lost cause. And Paul is telling them, no, 
keep going to the synagogue meetings, obey the rulers of the synagogues, pay the temple tax, don't drive these people away because God is going to save some of them, and don't drive them away before I can get there to share God's message with them so that the righteous among them will be saved. So anyway, that's, that's a lot of exposition there on this short verse 21. But again, in Paul's writings, these two visits are extremely important to him. And so he sends off uh, Timothy and a man named Erastus into Macedonia ahead, and he's going to stay on sometime in Ephesus, but again, we're getting close to his time of departure, which is important as part of this last event that is going to be the latter part of chapter 19. All right, any thoughts or comments then down to this point? All right, well, I I had hoped to get through this 19, but I don't think uh, we can really do it justice in the time that's remaining, so I'm going to suggest that we break here for the evening here and pick up again at verse 23 next time, if possible. Mark, yeah. I do have one question I'd like to back up that maybe can be fitted into this uh, session. It was uh, something that should have been brought up in verse 7. I didn't bring it up last time, I guess. It has uh, interesting modern connotations. Back in verse 6, it says, Paul uh, laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophecies. And that's a verse that is misused or abused or applied to the charismatic church in our time where speaking in tongues has an entirely different context of mysticism that is kind of appropriate with what we talked about, uh, the yeah. prophecies and everything and the, the actions of the people in those days having to do with believing in spirits and exorcisms and magicians everywhere, you might say. Can you tell us what was meant by speaking in tongues in the context that we should look at it? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't claim to be an authority in this field, but what we see are these gift of languages were given out to believers in the first century so that they could converse in languages that they had not formally studied. And it was a gift that was imparted to them instantaneously, so they didn't have to buy Rosetta Stone or anything like that. They just all of a sudden could speak in a new language or multiple new languages. And this is all about getting God's message and the gospel of Jesus Christ out quickly within one generation before the catastrophic events that overtook the entire Roman world in the period 66 to 70 A.D. took place. And so these gifts are very practical gifts that are confirming the word that is spoken and enabling the word to get out. Remember that what we call the New Testament was not committed to writing at this time. I mean, there's a few letters that are starting to be written and circulated, but they had nothing like a complete New Testament. So they were dependent on these miraculous gifts to get the news about Jesus and God's kingdom out quickly within one generation. And that's exactly how I see verse 6 fitting perfectly into God's plan and the urgency that pervaded the mission of the apostles there in the first century. And this is quite a contrast, as Chuck has noted, to the modern-day 
Pentecostal movement, which interestingly came out of the Methodist Church in the late 1800s. The Methodist Church is somehow obsessed with the idea of apostolic secession, which is tied into this idea of laying on of hands, which Chuck mentioned as well. So it doesn't surprise me that the modern-day Pentecostal movement came out of the Methodist Church. John Wesley was working within the Anglican Church, but he insisted on a methodical application of biblical principles in the daily life of the Christian, and so his followers have become known as Methodists. But he was obsessed with the fact that there had to be apostolic secession. We see here that an apostle had to lay hands for these gifts to be conveyed, and so the Catholic Church claimed to have the succession all the way down through their pope and cardinals and so on from Christ's original 12 apostles. And the Anglican Church, of course, split off from the Catholic Church. And so Wesley could see this clear line of secession from Peter and Paul in the New Testament all the way down to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he made it somehow through the American Revolution, but he did not survive the War of 1812. The Archbishop of Canterbury refused at some point in there in the early 1800s, refused to uh, lay his hands on these preachers that were being ordained into the Methodist Church in America. But up until that point, Wesley had insisted upon it, and they would ship these guys over to England to have their hands laid on them before they could come back to America and start preaching as ordained clergy. So they're kind of interrelated. <laughs> the Pentecostal movement, I don't know if they claim apostolic secession today, you know, but, but they certainly, they they kind of take this Kabbalistic view of these gifts, and they have translated into uh, an unknown language, meaning not just one that you haven't studied, but one that no one's ever heard of before, because it's just kind of a guttural babbling. I actually learned how to do it. I, I read a biography, very well done biography of uh, Oral Roberts by a man that I know, Ed Harrell, and it tells you exactly how to speak in these tongues. And I did, I followed the directions and I started speaking in an unknown tongue. <laughs> it was really quite easy. So, uh, what did I, you I, say to yourself? I have no idea. I, I didn't understand anything I was saying. Okay. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was something different, that's for sure. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> this has been about 20 years ago when I did this little exercise. But I can certainly see how easy it would be to convince someone that they're speaking in, a, in some unknown you know, language from a foreign planet or the language of angels or, or something like that. It's and then just, this sort of means that they're connecting to Jesus through this language. Is that somehow? Yeah, the, you, you're working yourself thing. up into an emotional frenzy, kind of an emotional drunken state, and that's equated somehow with greater holiness or closeness to God. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not an authority on it. I mean, I'm what these people would call a cessationist who believes that these very special gifts of the Holy Spirit were only for the one generation between Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem, and that now those have been replaced by the written scriptures that we know as the New Testament. And so those miraculous gifts are no longer 
needed for us to be uh, princes in the kingdom of God today. Mark, is there anything ever written any place in Scripture that says these are inherited by people who become believers? Well, yeah, and yes, because over and over it says, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and you are baptized for the remission of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So a modern-day charismatic can very sincerely go and read those scriptures and say, yeah, see, we're just doing here what Peter said or, or what Paul said. The complete gospel. Yeah, exactly. That without these miraculous gifts, you only have a partial incomplete gospel. Okay. So, you know, they have the four-square church or, the, you know, the, well, this idea, yeah, that you can't be complete without these super miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Great explanation. I really appreciate it. All right. Yeah, that was a fascinating aside. Thanks for the question, Chuck, and thanks for your insightful uh, reply, Mark, and we'll look forward to continuing on next week in X. Thank you. Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is, we hold these truths, faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest.